our gospel lesson for this Holy Easter Day comes from John's Gospel, chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What does it take to convince you and me of something extraordinary? To what links must another go to prove the unusual to us. Aren't we all in 2020 to a greater or lesser degree skeptics at heart? And when we enter the realm of the supernatural, we become even more skeptical for the most part. If something is outside the boundaries of our own experience, we are reluctant, hesitant to embrace it. There was a woman in my first church in Waco, Georgia. She died in 1977, believing that humans had never set foot on the surface of the moon. She asked me one day what I thought about this business of going to the moon. I told her I thought it was quite an accomplishment that we had the know-how and the desire to, to do such a thing. She said, it ain't so. I said, ma'am. It was all filmed on the desert in Arizona. If you look close enough, you could see cactus and, and other things. She blamed this hoax on the political party, which was opposite of the one which she embraced at the time. 
I believe you could have flown her to the moon and she would have swore and declared that she was somewhere in Arizona. At that time, I'd never been to Arizona. But I'm thinking there's probably a Wendy's and a Walmart and some other things that were there. So uh, I'll never forget this woman, her skepticism. Even today, children oftentimes seem to be growing up as skeptics. Imagining a scene like this is not as far out as it might seem. A mother walks into her bedroom and she catches her young daughter going through the mother's purse. And she said, I have told you to stay out of my pocketbook. What in the world are you doing? She said, well, mama, I lost another tooth today and I'm just going through the dollar bills in your wallet and writing down the serial numbers to find out if this truth fairy thing is for real or not. How can Santa Claus fit down that skinny chimney? How can the Easter Bunny hop all over the world in one night? What does it take to convince you and me of something extraordinary? Most likely we need to see it and then to analyze it as best we can, to have it analyzed for us by someone we trust. We're not much on subtleties. We desire proof, irrefutable proof. Stunning proof, a spectacular display, something that we just cannot miss, and then maybe we'll believe. But in our scripture lesson for this morning from John's gospel, the story of the resurrection of our Lord is told in such a way not to force belief, not to coerce belief, not to make someone believe something they're hesitant about. Some later Christian documents speak of some of the early witnesses and there are references to Christ appearing in public places in spectacular kind of ways, but that's not John's gospel's approach. In the New Testament, disciples later claim that we are all witnesses to the resurrection and in a way we are, but to actually have seen it that morning. What is it that has convinced us or is convincing us still that the resurrection is a reality. Some folks say that the new life that springs from the earth every year at this time of day, springtime, new growth, flowers and plants and the beauty of the creation and all of its splendor. And that helps them believe in the resurrection or convinces them of the resurrection. But wasn't there springtime even before Jesus was born? How can we say that Springtime alone is proof of the resurrection. Isn't there more to it than that? John chapter 20, we read a moment ago, verses 1 through 18, the gospel lesson. It's actually the interweaving of two episodes. One of them involves Mary Magdalene and the other Simon Peter and the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple is commonly assumed to be John, the apostle John, though that's never stated explicitly. In both of these episodes, Mary Magdalene and the beloved disciple come to faith, to belief, not through some earth-shattering power and force on the part of the resurrected Christ, but through things as simple as an empty grave and a called name. Let's look at the episode concerning the beloved disciple first. As in all of their appearances together in John's gospel, the beloved disciple sort of takes the lead, comes first. The gospel, the community that gave us John's gospel. And John was writing this story in a sense, so that's okay if he, he puts himself first. 
they are told by Mary Magdalene that the tomb is empty and so they race toward the tomb, they run toward the tomb and John gets there first. He's telling the story, John gets there first and he kind of looks in and steps back but Peter actually goes into the tomb and he looks around and the beloved disciple really becomes the first believer in the resurrection. I mean, he didn't go in the tomb, but he did see that it was empty and he saw the grave clothes laying there separated, the wrap around the body and the linen napkin that had been wrapped around the head. There was something unusual about the grave clothes. They were not wrinkled up. They were not strewn all over the place like what you might expect to see. They were lying there, still in their folds, where the body had been, where the napkin was. It was almost like the body of Christ had evaporated out of these grave clothes. The whole point of the description is that it didn't look like they had been taken off or put aside that Jesus had simply come out of them. An empty tomb plus the grave clothes equaled for the beloved disciple faith, belief in the resurrection. Faith allowed him to believe this or what he saw and experienced strengthened his faith so that he might believe. There's a story that I first ran across in 1987. Someone significant shared that story with me. I've been carrying it around for about 33 years and I know you've heard different versions of that story and so please bear with me and let me tell this again. I want us to, to think about the empty tomb and what it means to believe. The story was written by Harry Pritchard Sr. He was one time rector of All Saints Episcopal Church in Atlanta. In his words now for a moment, he said, Philip was a pleasant child, a happy one, but he seemed increasingly aware of the differences between himself and other children. His Sunday school teacher, a friend of mine, watched with interest as concern as he sat with nine other eight-year-olds in the third grade class. The children really cared about each other, even though eight-year-olds don't often say that out loud. But my friend could see that Philip was not really a part of that group. Philip was different. Philip was born with Down syndrome. My friend had no idea just how far-reaching his marvelous plan was for his class on the Sunday after Easter. He gathered some plastic eggs, the kind that pantyhose used to come in, and gave one to each of the children. And on that beautiful spring day, he said the children were to go outdoors, find symbols for new life, and put them in their eggs. Then they would mix them up and opened them and explained these new life symbols one by one. It was glorious, confusing, and wild as they ran out in the yard to gather their symbols. And when the children returned, they put all of these eggs on the table. And my friend began to open them. He opened the first and found a flower. The children oohed and awed. He opened another and saw a butterfly. Beautiful, the girl said. It's hard for eight-year-old boys to say beautiful. He opened another and discovered a rock. Some of the children laughed. That's crazy. What is that? How's a rock supposed to be like new life? And immediately one little boy spoke up and he said, that's mine. I knew everybody would get flowers and leaves and butterflies and stuff like that. So I got a rock because I want it to be different. And for me, that's new life, being different. And everyone laughed. The teacher opened the last one and there was nothing inside that's not fair, someone said. That's stupid, another one said. Somebody didn't do it right. My teacher 
friend felt a tug on his shirt. He looked down and he saw Philip standing beside him. It's mine, Philip said. I did do it. I did do it right. The tomb is empty. And the class fell completely silent. For those who don't believe in miracles, I want to tell you my friend saw one that day. From then on, Philip became part of the group. They embraced him. They welcomed him. He entered in. Philip was set free from the tomb of his differentness. An empty tomb convinced the beloved disciple. Is it enough for us? The major portion of John 21 through 18, the second episode focuses on Mary Magdalene, a sometimes misunderstood character in the New Testament. Unlike the other gospel accounts, John has Mary Magdalene alone at the tomb. Now on the first day of the week, she came to the tomb early. The empty tomb does not move her to faith. She's just convinced that somebody's moved the body to another place. There's got to be a logical explanation for this. And the two angels there could not convince her either to, to change her belief, could not alleviate her grief that the body of her Lord was gone. In fact, when Jesus appears in the story, she does not recognize him. And only when he speaks does she believe. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, teacher. This fulfills what had been told earlier when Jesus said as the shepherd, he knows his own. He calls them by name. They recognize his voice. Jesus was the good shepherd. These things were all true. And at one point, he himself said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one shall ever snatch them out of my hand. Unlike the beloved disciple, Mary Magdalene comes to faith not by the evidence of an empty tomb and the grave clothes, not by the revelation from angels, and not even by the sight of the risen Christ. She comes to faith by his word, a word that prompted a memory of a relationship which she had already formed and by which the resurrection was vindicated and sealed as an abiding relationship. Easter, for those who have followed all the way, even to Calvary, is a confirmation of trust. Easter is a promise kept now and always. The risen Lord's voice called Mary, and she was convinced. You may be familiar with the song, I'll be somewhere listening for my name. Maybe not in a cemetery early on a Sunday morning, but Mary was there, and she heard her name called. When have we heard him? speak our name, where we convinced that this is for real, that his call is real on our life. Is he calling today to some new ministry? Do we believe in him? Can we trust him even in this hour of disease and dread and darkness? Can we hear our names being called by the risen Christ? But even for disciples like Mary, Easter does not return her and Jesus to the past. It does not mean everything will be like it once was, but call to a glorious new future together, a new relationship. The earthly ministry for Jesus is over. The ministry of the exalted, abiding, everlasting, ever-loving Christ has begun. 
Nevertheless, I tell you to the truth, Jesus said, it's in your favor. It's for your good if I go away. For if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. In fact, the one who believes in me will do even greater works than I did, Jesus said, an amazing statement, because I go to the Father. Therefore, Jesus said to Mary, don't hold me. Rather, she's to go and announce his resurrection to the followers, to the apostles, to the disciples, and his ascension soon to the presence of God and his sending of the Holy Spirit to lead and empower and strengthen the church. I sometimes think about evidence for the resurrection and the fact that the church made up of mortals, frail mortals like all of us, is still here after all of these centuries is to me great evidence of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Mary, the risen Christ, said, and she believed. An empty tomb, grave clothes, no Jesus yet, and the beloved disciple believed. A spoken name, an empty grave. Lord God, if it could only have been more spectacular, if we could have had a few fireworks, we love things like that. Maybe more folk would have been convinced, would have believed, would have come to faith. Maybe more folks would have gotten the point of it all. We love those kind of displays of power and glory. But an empty grave, some folded up clothes, a name called in a cemetery. Let me finish now by telling you how that, the story of Philip, a little bit about how that all ended. Philip had obviously gotten the point and so had his friends and his teacher. Now from the time he was born, Philip's family had known that he would not live a long life. Many things had been wrong with his tiny body and that summer he was overcome with an infection that most children would have just shaken off. Late in July he died and on the day of Philip's funeral, all those little boys and girls, nine, eight-year-olds, met death's reality. And they marched up to the altar in that beautiful church, not with flowers. Nine children, with their Sunday school teacher, laid on the altar their gift, an empty egg. The tomb is empty, but our hopes, our dreams, our desires of being God's people and worshiping God and overcoming the dread that encompasses right now, those hopes are not empty. He lives and reigns and he gives us courage for these days to come. The Lord is risen today. The Lord is risen indeed. Amen.